I'm going to start us off in a way that's a little different than I normally would. Um, in fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you a question about something you might be like, what does this have to do with anything in the world about what we could possibly talk about at church? But that's okay. We're going to get there. We're going to, un- we're going to understand it, hopefully. Uh, hopefully you'll see the illustration here. How many of you have ever heard of the Indianapolis 500 or the Indy 500? Okay, quite a few of you. All right, this is, that's actually surprising to me. I would not have expected that many people. It is the greatest spectacle in racing is their motto, their tagline. It's a car race. And as you might have imagined, it's in Indianapolis and it's 500 miles long, um, uh, 200 laps around a two and a half mile track. Um, When I was a boy, like elementary age, I would go with my dad to the time trials of the Indy 500 every year. Now we didn't We only went to the race once when I was a kid because the race was on Sunday. And Sunday was for going to church. So we didn't go to the race except for one year that it got rained out on the Sunday and they did it on the Monday and so we went. But other than that, what we would do is we'd go the Saturday before the race to what was called time trials. And that's where the the cars would all make their laps and they would time them and whoever had the fastest time would be at the front of the pack when they line them all up to start the race. All right? And when you go to the greatest spectacle in racing, something along those lines, um, what you first notice when you go there is, um, I, I think I've got a picture here of like a, uh, a, a yeah, the, the grandstands, okay? This is from the Indy 500. The first thing that you notice when you get there, when you show up to this place, is the crowds. There's people everywhere and they're just flooding into this place. And when you get there, there's, there's lots of people, lots going on. You see this track in front of you, this big oval that's, that's spread out there. And, and then as you get there and you get your seat, you find out what's going on, you'll hear the first of the cars start in the pit row. And there's this roar of these engines. You're like, oh my goodness, I couldn't believe a car could actually sound like that. Hear that in the distance? I, was, I, I paid that guy 20 bucks to do that today at the time. So that's what happens. It's, you hear this roar of these engines. And then the, the next thing that you're taken by, the experience that you feel, is you see this blur of speed. These cars are going over 200 miles an hour around this track. And you're like, how? You're sitting there and you're just watching these things fly by. And that's the first level of experience that you'd have. If we all went to the Indy 500 and we went, walked in there, even if you didn't know anything else about car racing or Indianapolis or anything, you'd experience those things. And it would impact you to a certain degree. You'd be like, wow, that's, that's amazing. I don't know how they do what they do or how in the world there's this many people that are into this. But it is, and it's the way it is. Now, That's the first degree of experience. There's a second degree, kind of a second level of experience that I began gathering as a little kid. Because one of the other things that we'd do when I'd go there with my dad is we'd we'd get the program for the the race program. And in it, it's basically a little magazine that you'd buy that would have inside of it, it'd have these different articles on some of the drivers and some of the teams and it would talk about the technology of the cars and all this. And, And you'd go through and you'd start learning the names of the drivers and, and, and who did what and how this is happening and who the favorites are. And you start getting to this other level of understanding. And then when you're with somebody like my dad, who grew up as a kid being in a racing fan and into this, you start talking to him and he starts sharing 
all the, the things of, oh yeah, when I was here this year, we sat over there and then that happened. And oh, I remember this time that this guy won and that happened. And you know, you hear about the, the heroes of the sport. And that's why today I can tell you that A.J. Foyt, a race, indie race car driver, won in uh, 1961, 1964, 1967, and 1977. Okay? Um, four-time winner. You, I learned this from my dad. Because these are the things that he liked and these are the things that he enjoyed and he's sharing these things with me. And when you start understanding some of that, you start getting a different degree of enjoyment and anticipation. Because now it's not just some other bright colored car going by. You're like, oh, that's number 14. That must be, you know, this guy. Or that's number six. That's this. And, and you start having an, a, an understanding of that. Now, here's the thing. Many things in life have that where it's a, a almost a level system of enjoyment some of you we could talk about baseball and you could rattle off stats and statistics understanding of all that's happened in baseball and who the people are and you show up at a baseball game and you know what's going on you're not just there for the nachos some some people yes nachos that's why I'm there right? You know what's going on. There's this different level of anticipation for the game, enjoyment of the game, and excitement of the game because you know these other levels. Well, here's the thing. Spiritual experiences are the same way. Understanding the things of God work this way as well. And as we grow in our relationship with our heavenly dad, it gives him joy to draw us into deep things for us to experience. I'm sure it was fun for my dad to be able to take his son along with him and start sharing this thing that he enjoyed so much and talking about these things. It, it gave joy. And it's the same way with God. And our initial experiences with things like prayer or with worship or church community might be very simple or even shallow at first. I don't know what it was like for you the first time that you walked into a church. Maybe you weren't raised in a church at all, but a friend invited you and you showed up to church and you're like, oh, they sing songs as part of what they do. That's nice. I like songs, you know? Or the first time you learn to pray and you're like, wow, I get to talk to God? And, and there's, there's different things that happen. But, but as time goes on, as we learn more and experience more, we find that these things start getting deeper into our souls. And it adds, really, to the enjoyment of the experience. Okay? Now, today, we're going to talk about a spiritual experience. We're going to talk about something that's foundational to the church, that has always been foundational to the church, way back to the disciples. The time of the disciples. Today, we're going to talk about baptism. Now, the reason I wanted to set this up for you is because if I just walked up here this morning and said, today we're going to talk about baptism, many of you would be like, okay, I'm done. I know about baptism. I've heard baptism. I got baptized. I know what it's about. I, you know, I'm good. I don't need to hear anything else. But what I want to encourage you on is I want you to understand that even though we might know some of the basics of baptism, what I want us to do is to go a little deeper into baptism. Pun intended. Baptism, deep, get, no. Okay. What I want us to do is go deeper into it and see that it's much more than just an act of dunking someone in water. Okay? 
And I also want us to be ready to enjoy the experience that we are going to have together this Friday night, as you saw in the announcement, hopefully, that we're having a baptism on Friday night, and you're all invited to come and enjoy um, that experience together. So even if you're aware of baptism or have been baptized in the past yourself, go with me as we look a little deeper um, at it today. So here's some of the things we're going to look at. We're going to talk about what is baptism. So if you have no clue, never heard of baptism, today you're going to know. We're going to talk about what it is, where it's found in the Bible, what it does, and then a bunch of common questions that people have about baptism. Okay? You, you with me on this? You ready? Okay. So first off, what is baptism? Baptism itself is a church word. It comes from a Greek word, baptizo, which just means to dip, to sink, or to immerse. Baptism is the ritual submersion of a Christian in water. All right, that's the simple, kind of a simple definition for you. It's also known as a sacrament. And we're not a church where you hear us talk about sacraments and a lot of church words all that often, but a sacrament is just a sacred activity. Okay, something that you do that is a sacred action of the, of the Christian church. In, in our tradition of church, what, what we uh, celebrate, the, there are only two sacraments that we hold to as a Protestant Christian church. Baptism and communion. And by the way, before I forget, um, this is the first Sunday of the month, but we're not going to be serving communion here as a group today, but we're going to next week. We just had a lot of things happening that didn't make that possible for today, but just so you know, next week, come back and we will be serving communion together. But these two sacraments were established by Jesus for us. And every generation of Christians since the disciples have celebrated these two sacraments. Now, if you were raised in a Roman Catholic background, you may be aware of there's, there's five other sacraments that the Roman Catholic Church celebrates as well, okay? So these two of them are baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion, the Eucharist. Same word for this, or the, three different words for the same thing. All right, so that's what, basically what baptism is. Where is it found in the Bible? Because that's one of the things that you need to know. Where, why do we baptize? Why do we do this sacrament? Yes, okay, Jesus established it for us, but why is it that we, we baptize? Well, it's because it's something that we have been passed down in the traditions all the way through Scripture. Now, before I, we, we look at Luke, where we're going to start here this morning, I want you to understand a little of the context leading up to baptism, all right? Now, in our Bibles, we have what's called the Old Testament and the New Testament, and between those two time periods of when those books were written, there's a 400-year gap between the end of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, until the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, is how we have it set up. And there's a 400-year period of silence between those two. And Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament prophets until a guy comes on the scene with the New Testament named John, all right? And you also might know him as John the Baptist, okay? And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And where we pick up on the story here in Luke is uh, uh, one of the lesser-known angelic visits in the Bible. Most people are very aware, aware of the fact that uh, an angel visited Mary before Jesus was born to say, Mary, you're going to be the mother of Jesus, Right? 
Well, there's another visit of an angel coming to a soon-to-be parent uh, found in Luke chapter 1, where we're going to look at, which is an angel came to speak to Zechariah, who was a priest of Israel at the time. And Zechariah is going about his priestly duties, and he comes to the temple, and he's to go in to the holy place and offer the sacrifices for the nation of Israel. And he's supposed to do this alone. It's a great privilege to be chosen, to be able to be the one to do that. And so he's all excited. He gets ready that morning. He goes to the temple. He begins to walk in to do his thing in the holy place and offer the sacrifices for the people. And when he walks in, he finds a surprise. And that's what we're going to see here in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 11. All right? And here's what it says. And there appeared to him, this is Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. He's like, oh no, I just walked into a place where there's not supposed to be anybody. And not only that, I've got an angel of God appearing to me. What have I done wrong? This is scary. And it says in verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them, listen to this, in the spirit and power of Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. He's going to go with him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Listen, here's why. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the angel comes, talks to Zechariah and says, your son John is going to go and prepare the people for what God's about to do. Now for all of the history of Israel, They had been waiting for a Messiah to come. And that's what the prophets always talked about and looked toward and pointed toward. And Zechariah realizes here, okay, this is all about to happen. This thing that my father and his father and his father's father, back generation and generations have been hoping for, this is all about to take place. And so he's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, that great Old Testament prophet, and John begins preparing people by baptizing them, okay? He's baptizing them. If you, if you go a little farther in Luke, it'll be on the screen here for you, you don't have to. In Luke chapter three, it tells us in Luke 3, 3, and he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John understood his role to prepare people and what he was called to do was to go and start baptizing people so that they would repent and be prepared for the Messiah. That was the whole point. Okay, now I want you to turn over to Matthew, the first uh, book of the New Testament, the first gospel, and Matthew chapter three because we're gonna look at a passage of scripture there too. And then from then on, um, the rest of these verses will be on the screen for you. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John explains what it was that he was doing. In Matthew 3, 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But 
He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now here's what I want you to understand. We've got in the New Testament two baptisms that are being described by John here, okay? He says, I've got this water, this water baptism of repentance so that you're, you're, we're, we're rinsing you clean of your sins so you're prepared to meet the Messiah. But there's going to be another baptism that comes along and that baptism is going to be with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's a difference between these two baptisms that are being described. And what we see as the gospel goes on in Matthew chapter 3, a couple verses farther there, is that Jesus, when he shows up, he comes to be baptized in this baptism of John, this water baptism. Now, you might be like, well, why on earth would he do that? Jesus didn't sin. He didn't need to be cleansed of his sins. We'll get there, but let's read about it. Matthew 3, 13 to 17. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, that's a river, to John, to be baptized by him. John the Baptist, Baptist who's baptizing people. And John would have prevented him saying, well, hold on, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Here's what we have to understand. Every requirement that God had for his people every requirement that he imposed on his people was imposed on his son. The, 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 the Ten Commandments, for instance, the laws of God, Jesus was raised in that. Jesus knew I'm to follow those commands of God. God commanded John to go and begin baptizing people for repentance and preparation. Jesus said, I'm one of God's people. I'm to go and be baptized. This fulfills the righteousness. This is what God said to do. I'm going to be obedient to my father. I'm going to get baptized. Like I said, he didn't need it for, for sin removal, but he was, he was o- obeying his father in that. This was the, the end, the, the very tail end of what was the old covenant, the old connection that God had with his people. And the new covenant was on its way. The old covenant, as we know, the whole sacrificial system would cleanse people from their sins temporarily. And there was a lot to that. You'd offer all these different animals in these different ways and you had to go through the the festival system of this is what we do for this time and that for this and there's all these rules and regulations and entire priesthood to take care of all that. And John's baptism was the end of that. His baptism was, I want you to, to get yourself clean Get your head right because the Messiah is coming. And so he said, you repent from your sins, repent from your sins and and be baptized. But it was a temporary cleansing to prepare them to meet the Messiah who would forgive their sins permanently. That's what Jesus was coming to do. And after Jesus had gone through the, the experience of the cross, after he died on the cross and rose again and defeated sin and death, 
he commanded that we go and baptize new believers in the world, throughout the world. All right? Um, you won't have to turn there, but this is now the end of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. This is known as the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, he's already resurrected now. He's coming to his disciples. And he said to them, all authority in heaven on, and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. John came baptizing in the name of the Father. And what he said was, look, the Father has told me to get ready for the Messiah. And I'm supposed to get you guys ready for the Messiah. Jesus comes along. He does what he does, establishes himself, defeats sin and death, and tells them I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And now when Jesus sends people out, he doesn't say, hey, keep doing what John was doing. Go out there and baptize them with water that they'd be cleansed and repentant of their sins. No, what Jesus says is, you go out there and baptize, but now you baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. It's all here now. The new covenant is all here. And he said that specifically to the disciples in Acts. Once the church is about to be born here in Acts 1, verses 4 to 5, Jesus, while he's staying with them, it says, and, and he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For he tells us that this very thing that I just said to you. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, so what do we see happen? As time goes on, the disciples didn't say, okay, well, now we only deal with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Son. No, they didn't throw out water baptism. They continued to baptize with water. But now they understood that there was more involved. It wasn't just the baptism of repentance. Now they, they understand that Jesus is telling them, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So now you're going to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This baptism, this new baptism, was more than just a temporary emptying of sin, but was now a filling of the life of the Son and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what the New Testament church began doing. The book of Acts is the, the birth of the church and the life of the church in the first century. And if you go through Acts and look for baptism, you'll find that that's exactly what the disciples start doing. They go through and they baptize. They baptize in Acts 2 and Acts 9 and Acts 8 and Acts 10 and Acts 16 and 18 and 19. We don't have time to look at all those individual baptisms, but we'll look at one here today. The day of Pentecost. If you know that story, the very day that the Holy Spirit fell on the believers in the upper room. And they're up there together praying. Jesus told them, hey, go wait in Jerusalem for me. And the Holy Spirit, is you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They had no idea what that meant. But they gathered together, they started praying. And if you remember that story, a radical supernatural event took place. It sounded like mighty rushing winds. They thought a tornado was ripping through Jerusalem. And they hear all this noise, this sound of wind come through. And the Holy Spirit enters into this room where they're all praying. 
And not only was there the sound, there was all this visual happening. The way that Luke describes it in Acts is it almost looked like fire was coming down and resting on each of these people. In this radical experience. And the the Holy Spirit then came upon each of these individuals and, and supernaturally impacted them in such a way that they began speaking in these other languages they didn't even know. And, and everybody from around Jerusalem heard the noise. And they're like, whoa, what just happened? Did you hear that? I heard that. It was over there. Let's go see what happened. They all come together, and they're from all over the world visiting Jerusalem for this festival. And when they show up, the disciples step out and start proclaiming the gospel in all these native languages that they don't even know before this day. And the people who are from all over the world come together and like, what are these Jewish guys doing coming out of this room they're from Galilee they know my language and I'm from thousands of miles away and they're all declaring the praises of God what is this what is happening and God used it as an opportunity for the gospel to now begin spreading to these places that are going to scatter throughout the world and what happens Peter the same Peter that we've been studying in, in the first letter of first Peter Peter, the apostle, steps up and it's the, the sermon that he gives that says, hey, I know everybody's wondering what on earth is happening right now. I'm glad you heard the, the call to worship with this, this noise. I'm glad you're all here, but let me explain what happened. There was this man who was just crucified. His name was Jesus, but he wasn't just a man, he was God. He was God's Messiah and he came bringing life over death to everybody that would hear it but he was crucified. And he goes and explains this to all these people. And here's what it says at the end of his message in Acts chapter two, verses 36 to 41. Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, listen, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And look what happens. This is day one of the church, guys, day one. In verse 41, it says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And as you continue to go through and follow the book of Acts and follow the church, everywhere they went, they would preach the gospel, people would receive the gospel, they would repent, they'd get saved, and they'd be baptized. And that's what you would see as you went on. So, so what is, that's what baptism is. That's where we find it in scripture. What is it for? Because you might be like, well, okay, I, I, I see that. I know it's in the Bible. I see that they, they've always done it. And I've heard about, what is it actually for? Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. Okay, chew on that for a second. It's an outward expression of an inward reality. Those who received and believed the gospel had an opportunity to do something about it and show that they were believers. 
show that they really trusted in Jesus as their Savior. And it's a symbol of the death of our old person and the new life that we found in Jesus. We have been resurrected with him. All right? That's what the waters of baptism represent. As we go down into the waters of baptism, we're down there underwater. Guess what? If you try to breathe down there, it's not going to work. You're going to drown. You're going to die. It's death down there. Don't stay. But as we come out of the waters of baptism, we're, it's, it's a symbol of us moving into new life. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. That's what he's saying. It's like when you go down into the waters of baptism, you're being buried down there with him. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what's it for? It's a celebration of moving from death to life. It's a celebration for you to say, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. He's given me life. I was dead in my sin, but now I'm alive in him. It's a celebration for the church. It's a statement before God and before other people that you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And it's a sign of the work that God has begun in your life. All right, so now you might ask the question, and we're going to answer a few of these common questions here today. Is it necessary then to be saved? Do I have to get baptized if I'm going to be saved? Can I go to heaven without being baptized? It's a big question that people have a lot. Well, what I'm going to say to you here, and, and if you have learned otherwise, we'll talk about it. But what I'm going to tell you is no. You do not have to be baptized for salvation. Now, if you were raised in the Roman Catholic Church, you might be like, hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was always taught that you had to be baptized to be saved. Let's explain that and let's talk about that a little bit. Um, it's not just Roman Catholic churches. It's also Church of Christ churches and some Episcopalian churches believe that doctrine. Um, and I'm sure there's some other um, types of churches that do that as well. The Roman Catholic Church believes that baptism is the instrument by which salvation is communicated. Okay, that's how they describe it. It's the salvation, um, the instrument by which salvation is communicated and that it is the tool of our justification. So you can't know that you're saved unless you've been baptized because that's the tool that God uses to let you know you've been saved. Okay? Protestant theology, that just means not Catholic churches, okay? The, the, the Protestant churches are the other churches that are not Roman Catholic churches. Protestant theology says that we're justified by faith alone. Belief. Okay? Now, the Roman Catholic Church and those that hold that say baptism is necessary for salvation, they, they build that doctrine on one verse in Mark chapter 16, verse 16. And here's what it says. It says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. But the verse goes on. And what it says, as it goes on, it says, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So they look at that and they say, see, it says believed and baptized. 
But it also goes on and doesn't mention baptism. It only says belief. So what the Protestant theology would say is we believe that what Jesus was focusing on there, because those are the words of Jesus in, in Mark 16, 16, we believe that belief was Jesus' focus. All right, if you want to spread that out now into the look at the rest of the Bible, because that's what you need to do when you try to understand a doctrine, we also run into issues like the thief on the cross. Do you remember that story? Jesus is hanging on the cross, and there's two thieves that are being crucified with him. And at first, both those thieves are ridiculing Jesus and saying, yeah, you got what you deserve and everything else and attacking him. But one of those thieves has a change of heart as he's hanging up there, as you would think he would. But what does he do? He ends up saying to Jesus, he says, Lord, calls him Lord, which is interesting. Lord, when you enter into your kingdom, because I believe that's what's going to happen after this, will you remember me? And what does Jesus say? I'm so sorry. If I had some water and I could baptize you, if I could splash you over there, you could come. I can't baptize you. You can't be saved. No. What does Jesus say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. What do we see of the thief on the cross? Belief. Just belief that he was the one who could save, that he was going to be his savior. All right? Not only that, one of the most well-known Bible verses in the entire world, John 3:16, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe and be baptized, no, just believe. Whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life." That's what Jesus said over and over. And then we also look to Ephesians chapter two, eight and nine, which says, "For by grace you've been saved through faith." And that is not your doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What we believe is that we are saved purely and totally on our belief. It's a gift of God, it's his grace. It's no work, including baptism. It's not for our salvation, it's for us. All right? So if that's the case, all right, well, if that's, I don't have to get, baptized to get saved then why would you get saved at all or why would you get baptized at all well I like what uh, R.C. Sproul says about this a Bible commentator Bible teacher he says baptism is not necessary for salvation however if you were to ask me is baptism necessary for the Christian I would say absolutely it's not necessary for salvation but it is necessary for obedience because Christ with no ambiguity, commanded that all of those who belong to him, who are part of the new covenant family, and who receive the benefits of his salvation, are to be baptized in the Trinitarian formula, Father, Son, and Spirit, right? That's what we looked at with Matthew 28, when he says, go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So what his argument is, he says, look, yeah, it's not going to save you, but Jesus said to do it. So why should you be baptized? First, because Jesus says, be baptized. Secondly, why would you be baptized? Is because it's also a means of grace. Okay, that's why Jesus gave us these sacraments. That's why he gave us communion, the Lord's Supper, to remember the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. And that's why he gives us baptism, to remember the fact that we have been taken from death to life. These are events, experiential things that we are supposed to experience so that we understand all that he has done for us. It's a means of grace. 
Sacraments are, are ordinary physical acts. When we take communion together, we're taking a cup, we're drinking, we're eating. I mean, it's as basic as you get, right? <laughs> eating and drinking. In this case, you're, you're being submersed in water and pulled back out of water. It's, it's an ordinary thing, but God meets us there in a powerful way. When we take communion or when we're baptized, it's not just simply going through emotion. It's a meaningful thing. That's what makes it sacred. That's why we call them sacraments. And Jesus established these things for us. So baptism is a reminder of what God has done and it's a a means of grace. And he is the author and finisher of our faith. I think the better question to ask if you're saying, well, you know, why should I be baptized? The better question is, why shouldn't you be baptized? Why wouldn't you? It's a great opportunity. So, moving on here. Who then should be baptized? Well, the answer is everyone who becomes a Christian. That's who should be baptized. I I described it to you already. What's the kind of the flow of salvation? First, hearing the gospel. You've heard the gospel message. You've responded with repentance to say, yes, I am a sinner. I am in need of, of salvation. And by doing that, you say, well, who's the savior? Jesus. He's the one I'm gonna trust in. He's the one I'm going to believe in. And that then is followed by baptism and a lifetime of transformation as we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So here's some, here's some other common questions that pop up. Well, what if I was baptized as a baby? What about that? Because there are some traditions that baptize infants. Well, what I would describe to you or the question I would ask you is, well, were you a believer as a baby? I just told you it's a, a, an, an inward or a, an outward expression of an inward reality. Were you a believer as a baby? Um, no, you didn't know much as a baby. You just went wherever that person put you, right? So in that case, feel free to be baptized again, Okay. Here's another question. When should children be baptized? Because that's the next question that pops up a lot. Okay, well, if we don't baptize as babies necessarily, then when is it? When should they be baptized? When they become believers. We believe in believer baptism. So if they are a believer and they trust in the Lord as their Savior and they can express that and understand that, there's no reason that they shouldn't be baptized or they couldn't be baptized. With my own family, the way it's worked, um, when uh, my daughter first was asking to be baptized, I just asked her, well, why would you want to be baptized? And if the answer is, because my friends are getting baptized, sounds really cool, or because I know when we go to baptism, I'd rather be in the pool than sitting on the edge. If those are the answers, no. (laughs) But if they can express, this is why I would be baptized, because I know that Jesus is my Savior, I'm putting my trust in Him, I'm a believer, so I should be baptized. Then at that point, yes, let's go for it. But it requires an understanding of the gospel. All right, here's another one that pops up a lot. What if my life got off track after I was baptized, but now I've returned to the Lord? Do I need to get re-baptized? Right? Maybe you heard the gospel message, you came, to, came forward, you started trying to follow after the Lord, you got baptized, everything's good for a while, and then something happened and you went off the rails. Then you come back to church later and you're like, okay, I feel guilty that I blew it. Was that baptism even any good? Do I need to get rebaptized? Well, there is no need to be rebaptized. No. It's a once and for all thing. We don't baptize the Old Testament baptism of rinsing your, off your sin like John did, right? That's not what happens. 
The baptism that we've been baptized with now is once and for all. Jesus doesn't have to once a year pop up on the cross and be crucified. He did it once and for all. It's covered. It's good. But I will say this. I have still rebaptized people. And the reason that I've rebaptized people is because for some people they're like, I just, I really want to do this again. Can I? There is no scriptural mandate that says you can't. All right? Now, I'm not asking all of you to be rebaptized. <laughs> Please don't. Um, but if that's something that's heavy on somebody's heart, there's no reason that we cannot rebaptize. There's not a place in scripture that says you can only get baptized one time. But there is no need. Uh, one baptism does the, does the work. All right, what if, here's another question, what if I was baptized by someone who's no longer a Christian? That's another one that pops up. They, you know, maybe they had a, they were part of a church and they had a pastor that baptized them and then that pastor just, he was the one that went off the rails and things went wild and they're like, oh my goodness, was that baptism any good? Did that baptism take? It's the same question that I've had people ask about their marriage. They're like, I got married by this guy and he went wacko and should, do I have to get married again? Like, no, no. Remember, it's not the integrity of the person baptizing you that matters. The integrity of baptism is from the one who is doing the work, God. The, the person is just an instrument that God is using in it. God is the one who has established the new covenant with us. That's what matters. It's the same thing if you've heard the gospel from somebody who's no longer working, walking with the Lord. You know, maybe a coworker told you about Jesus years ago and you're like, yeah, I believe. And, and you've started walking with the Lord and they went off somewhere. That doesn't matter. It doesn't nullify it. It's the same way with baptism. All right, we're almost done here. Couple more questions. How then do we baptize? Because that's one of the questions that people ask. You know, there are different modes, they're called, of baptism. Sometimes people sprinkle with baptism. Other times they pour with baptism. Other times they immerse, you dunk people in baptism. What is the way that we baptize? When possible, when it's possible, we do our best to carry on the tradition of Jesus. Okay? And it seems from scripture that John baptized by immersing people in the Jordan River. So it's our belief that Jesus was baptized by immersion. And we know as you go on that uh, the, the disciples were baptizing people by immersion. So that is what we try to do. We immerse people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But is there a strict formula in Scripture? The answer is no, there's not. There's a strict formula for the Old Covenant and the sacrificial system and there's certain things that you had to do and when you had to do it and how you had to do it and all the list is there. But in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, there is no, here is the only way that it can be done. So in other situations, there are, it is acceptable to baptize people in other uh, methods, other ways, but typically that's what we, the way that we baptize is by finding some water that we can immerse somebody in. All right, next question. I've only got two more questions here. Who can baptize people? Do you have to have a, 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 an ordination paper to be able to baptize? Do you have to, you know, have been walking with the Lord for X number of years or get to some level of church leadership? No. What we find is that Jesus' disciples 
were the ones who baptized. In John 4, 2, it says specifically, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. And as you go through the book of Acts, you see every disciple, they're baptizing people. And that's why we often, you'll see us invite parents down into the, the, the baptiz, baptismal, whatever we're doing at a pool or a bay or whatever. We'll invite parents to come down. They can be part of the baptism. Why? Because as long as they're disciples of Jesus, they are um, able to baptize as well. Or sometimes it's, you know, somebody was really instrumental in leading you to the faith. Can they be part of your baptism? Totally. Can they come down there and baptize? Yes. We don't have any limitations on that. And the final question then, as we finish here today, well, when can I be baptized? Friday. (laughs) Friday. If you want to be baptized... Maybe this for the first time, you're like, okay, now it makes sense to me. I've always thought it was just this weird thing that Christians do, never really got it. Now I understand. If you haven't been baptized, what's stopping you? Why wouldn't you be baptized? Follow in obedience to the Lord and be baptized. We'd love to baptize you. And I know already um, for this Friday, we've got a few people that are already lined up that said, I want to be baptized. So I can promise you won't be the only one being baptized. And if you are the only one, I'll, I'll convince some other people to get rebaptized, and so you won't be, okay? So that, that's the opportunity that we have. And, and I understand that today is different because it's, this is a, very much a teaching message to understand baptism. But I want you to, guys to be able to understand this is a great opportunity for us as a church. And I also hope that it gets all of us excited to come on Friday and to experience this together. And I hope that you have a slightly deeper understanding of what does it mean to be baptized and what's happening when this is all, this event is taking place. It's a great opportunity for for each of us to experience.